The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Our scripture reading today comes from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Romans 5, 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions, because we know that affliction produces endurance, endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given for us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received this reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. If you're new to Redeemer today, we are in our second week of a sermon series Uh, ostensibly from Romans chapter 8, although last week we were in Romans chapters 1 through 3, and this week we're in Romans chapters 4 through 7. So uh, please open your Bible there, and as you're doing so, I want to let you know about a couple of things that are kind of going alongside this in the life of Redeemer. For one, last week we announced that we're going to be working on memorizing Romans chapter 8 together. Everyone should have gotten one of these bookmarks, and there's kind of a schedule on there for memorizing it. Uh, How you doing? I'm a little behind, I'm going to be honest, so i got to catch up this weekend. But here's the other thing, if this is not a law, okay, so if you're new to this or if memorization is difficult, um, look, it's hard for everybody, and we would encourage you at the very bottom of the back, just memorize the first 11 verses, or just memorize the first verse, or just read it every day, um, but some way be in, in the Word of God. And we do encourage you, if you can, to stretch yourself to memorize that chapter. There's something about getting God's Word inside of us. Uh, that we can kind of see it in a new way. We understand it in a new way. That's been my experience in the past. Alongside that, we are entering today into a season uh, of 28 days of prayer. And so on your way in today, you should have gotten one of these brochures, 28 days of prayer. Pastor Josh mentioned at the end of service last week that, that we needed to pray and fast about what the Lord's will is for us as we try to move forward with our plans to build a building in this crazy uh, construction climate. And so would you join us for these 28 days of prayer? Inside this guide, you'll see uh, some different times that we're going to be praying every Sunday for the next three Sundays. We'll meet at nine o'clock in the pavilion for prayer. And then you can pray in your community groups on Wednesday nights or Tuesdays or Thursdays, whenever they meet. And of course, Thursdays at noon in the church office is another opportunity for prayer and the men's breakfast. And then we encourage you just in your own prayer time with your family or by yourself with the Lord to use these prayer prompts that are on the inside of here to ask for the Lord's blessing and wisdom and guidance as we walk through this time. We need to bathe this season. It's a pivotal season in the life of our church. We need to bathe it in prayer and in fasting. And you'll see in there 
that on Fridays we're, we're encouraging you to fast with us. Let's fast together. And there's a little more about that in that brochure. So I hope that we'll do that together. I pray that God will use that uh, this season really to grow our dependence on Him. Amen? Amen. Well, I want to dive into Romans chapters 4 through 7. I have good news for you today. Uh, I get to talk to you about the good news of God's grace. Now, the first verse of Romans 8 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Last week, Josh had the sort of difficult job of talking about why there's condemnation outside of Christ Jesus. And this week, we're going to look at chapters 4 through 7 and see why there is now no condemnation if you're in Christ Jesus. Now, why is that? In a word, the answer is grace. It is more specifically God's grace. That's why there is therefore now no condemnation. What is grace? Grace is undeserved blessing. And actually, it's better than that. Grace is blessing that you don't deserve. Blessing when you deserve cursing. The late Christian counselor David Pallison wrote an essay called God's Love Better Than Unconditional. In it, he sort of coined a phrase and said that God's grace is counter-conditional love. It's love when you deserve cursing. One of my favorite depictions of this in literature is, uh, is in a book I've never read, but I've seen the musical and I've watched the movie, and uh, it's in the opening scene of Victor Hugo's Les Mis. In Les Miserables, uh, the main character is Jean Valjean, and he's just out of prison as the, as the musical starts. And he has no money, and he has nowhere to stay. And so he, he finds the only place he can think to stay, and that's uh, at the church. And he ends up staying in the home of the priest. And there, in the middle of the night, knowing that he has no money, that there's no way forward for him, he steals the silver candelabras and uh, bags them up and makes off. Well, the police officer Javert, who is a self-righteous man who has caught Jean Valjean many times in the past, he catches him again, beats him, and drags him back to the priest's house. Javert wakes the priest up, and he proudly announces his catch. Valjean is on the floor, bloody from the beating, and Javert tells the priest something like, I caught him with this stolen silver of yours, and I'm ready to take him to jail. You can feel him gloating and boasting about what he's done. The priest, though, looks at Valjean and says, he didn't steal those, I gave them to him. Javert can't imagine why that would be. Valjean cannot understand what is happening The priest tells Valjean he can even keep the valuables. Javert goes away, and in that one act of grace, maybe the first and only act of grace that Valjean had ever experienced, his life is totally transformed. He repents of the theft with tears, and he can never go back to the way he lived before. Valjean deserved to be thrown back in prison. Instead, without doing or saying anything to deserve it, He's given forgiveness, dignity, riches, and his freedom, all in a single moment, by the grace of the priest. And what I get to tell you about today is that that reality, times a million, is true for you and for me in Christ. And that reality of grace is happening not just between two fictional characters, but it has happened and is happening now between 
God, the divine creator, and you and me. The reason that we're not condemned before God is God's grace toward us in Christ. That's the only reason. So praise God, in Christ we're pronounced not guilty because of the sheer grace of God. And this forgiving, dignifying, enriching, and freeing grace is available for anyone who doesn't deserve it. So we're going to ask two questions of these chapters, chapters 4 through 7. The first question, we're going to ask it twice. You'll see what I mean. The first question we'll ask is, who can receive God's grace? And then the second question is, well, what if we do receive God's grace? What then? So first, from chapter 4, let's ask that first question, who can receive God's grace? The answer is anyone by faith. Anyone can receive it by faith. Now, let me be honest with you, I really struggled with how to faithfully talk about what's in Romans chapter 4. When I preach, I'm not just looking for the content to match the content of the text. I also want the, the context and the feel of what I'm saying to match what the Lord is saying and why he's saying it. And I think that's something that every Christian should be cognizant of, that we should be aware of as we're talking about God's word, that we don't want to just say what God has said, but we want to say it the way he said it, and if we can, for the reasons that he said it. So that's what I'm going to try to do in Romans 4. In this chapter, we see this great theological doctrine that salvation or justification is by faith. We're going to talk about that. But the reason that Paul brings out that theological argument is to make a pastoral point. And that point is that because justification is by faith, anyone can be made right with God. So Paul is making this theological point in service of this pastoral focus. You don't have to be the right kind of person to receive God's grace. You don't have to clean up your act to receive God's grace. You don't have to be a good Christian to receive God's grace. Just like in Les Mis, with the grace of God, repentance follows the act of grace. God gives grace and then we change. We receive his grace simply by believing him and taking him at his word. Let's see this in Romans 4. Now, uh, Romans 4 comes, of course, on the heels of Romans chapters 1 through 3. Now, the book of Romans is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. And that church in Rome would have been made up largely of Jewish Christians, so they would have known their Old Testament, and they simply would have called it the Scriptures. And then Paul has already been talking in the first three chapters about how everyone, both Jews and Gentiles, is under condemnation. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yet, at the end of chapter 3, the apostle has said that God has made a way for both Jews and Gentiles to be made righteous in his sight. Now, that word, we're going to use that word a lot, righteous or justify. And that just means pronounced not guilty. It's as if we're standing before the, the, the judgment seat of Christ, and he has said, not guilty. That's what righteous means. It means perfect, spotless, clean rap sheet. Now, only the righteous are qualified to stand before the holy God. Listen to Romans 3, verses 22 through 24. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, Jews and Gentiles, since there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Okay, so that's the background leading us into chapter 4. And in chapter 4, Paul takes us back into the Old Testament and specifically to the life of Abraham, who is the forefather of the Jews 
uh, and of Israel. Look at chapter 4 with me, verses 3 through 5. Paul says, For what does the Scripture say? And then he quotes Genesis 15, verse 6. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. Paul's point is that Abraham didn't do anything to be credited or paid righteousness. Instead, Abraham simply believed God. And in the act of believing, in that act of simple faith and trust, God freely credited righteousness to Abraham. Now, for many of us, if we've been in church a while, it's easy to skim over this and say, yeah, I got that. It's by grace. But revisit this with me. Let's be reminded of this massive and mind-bending radical reality that Paul's laying out here that God gives righteousness, not guilty. He gives that freely as a gift to anyone who simply trusts him. Every single person on this planet is trying to get into what C.S. Lewis described once as an inner ring. I think maybe you know what I'm talking about. In other words, we all want to be included at the cool kids' lunch table. All right, did anybody else? Public school. We all wanted to be at the cool kids' lunch table. You want to be in the in crowd. We want to be in that circle of people where we know that we're important and we matter. For some of us, it's the, suite, the C-suite or the boardroom. For others, it's a particular circle of friends. For others, it's a neighborhood or a country club or people who own Lamborghinis or people who own Harleys or, I don't know, people who own Beater $3,000. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> I don't know. What circle you want to be in. We all want to be in that inner ring of people where we know we matter. For other people, it's fame or reputation. We want to be in that exclusive group. But here's the deal. So many people have made it into that circle only to discover their lives are just as empty as they were before. That fame, success, money, good kids, whatever it is, power, doesn't lead us to that contentment we thought it would. And the reason is that you and I were made for a particular circle, but not any merely human one. You were made in the image of God to live with God now and forever. You were made in the image of God to be included in the circle of those who know God, the Father, personally. That's what we're made for. But we can't get into that circle for all the reasons Josh talked about last week. We are sinners. We're separated from God. We're disqualified. We've rebelled against God. We've gone the other way. However, if we simply trust God, if we simply believe him, he credits that to our account as righteousness, as a gift. Without cost, we gain access to the most exclusive and most open club that there is, the circle that is in the presence of God, the family of God forever. Okay, back to Abraham. If you don't know the story of Abraham, here it is in a nutshell. Abraham and his wife, Sarah, were too old to have kids, and yet God promised Abraham that he would make him into a great nation, that he would bless him and make his name great, that he would be a blessing. 
On top of that, God promised Abraham as many descendants as there are stars in the sky. Now look with me at chapter 4, verses 19 through 25. This will be a good illustration for us of faith. He, that's Abraham, did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body to be already dead since he was about a hundred years old, and also the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, because he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to do. Therefore, it was credited to him for righteousness. Now, it was credited to him was not written for Abraham alone, but also for us. It will be credited to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So God promised something physically impossible to Abraham. And Abraham chose to trust God. He believed that what God promised, God could do. That's the faith that's credited him for righteousness. And God still works that way with us. If we believe the the impossible, if we believe that God raised Jesus physically from the dead, if we believe that Jesus was delivered up for our sins against God and raised to make us righteous before God, if we simply trust that God has done that, then God has credited righteousness to us. So it is by faith. Who can receive God's grace? Anyone. By faith, by simply trusting God. That's the emphasis of chapter 4. And now as we turn to chapter 5, we see the answer to that question become complete as we ask it a second time. Who can receive God's grace? The answer is anyone by faith in Christ. Anyone by faith in Christ. I want to read chapter 5, verse 1 for us, but before I do, Remember that in our nature, we do not have peace with God. We've gone our own way. We've made created things into ultimate things. We've worshiped other things as idols. We judge others as though we are God. And of course, we don't keep God's perfect law to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we don't love our neighbors as ourselves. We've all lied. We've all lusted. We are, certainly, we have all coveted. By nature, we are under the just judgment of God. We do not have peace with God. Maybe it would help to do this. Would you, if it would help you, would you just repeat after me, I am a sinner. I am a sinner. That will help us get Romans 5.1. I am a sinner. Now, we all want the world to be perfect, but if we're honest, if the world's going to be perfect, something's going to have to be done about you and about me. So say this with me, I am part of the problem. I am part of the problem. Somebody once asked uh, G.K. Chesterton, what's wrong with the world? And he said, sir, I am. Now, we do not have peace with God. That's the bad news. But listen to Romans 5 verse 1. Here's the good news. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, nobody fell out of their chair, so nobody heard that. (laughs) Therefore, since we've been justified just by trusting God, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is as if Judgment Day has already happened. Not the movie, not Terminator 2. Judgment Day before Jesus Christ has already happened. We've already waited our turn in front of Christ for his ruling on our eternal fate, heaven or hell, and he has already pronounced the judgment over you. And if you're in Christ by faith, the judgment is not guilty. Come in. You're forgiven. Therefore, verse 2 says, we have also obtained access through Christ by faith into this grace in which we stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. This grace toward us, this free but costly, undeserved grace toward us in Christ, it changes everything as we're going to see. But first we need to talk about why it is in Christ that we're pronounced not guilty. In Romans 5, I see at least three reasons why our justification by faith is in Christ alone. The first is that God's love for us is seen in Christ. God's love for us is seen in Christ, specifically in the death of Christ. This is in verses 6 through 11. Look at those with me. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person. Though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, that's Christ, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? That's Christ's resurrection life. And not only that, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. Do you see how it is through him, through Christ, through the death of Christ? One of the stubborn things about Christianity is that it is rooted in history. It's not just a myth or a set of propositions about how to be in the world. It is not just a theory. Because of that, it can't just be true for some and not true for everyone. Either the divine creator in his love sent his son into the world to die for sinners, or he didn't. You you can't have it one way or the other. It's got to be just one or the other. There's no middle ground. And I believe that he did send his son into the world. There's a wealth of historical evidence for it that we could talk about, but we don't really have time. There's a crowd of people gathered out here in this field testifying to the reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there's congregations like this all over the world in buildings and some in fields. And then there's the question of why did almost all the 12 disciples go to their deaths believing that Jesus died and was raised? Why would they do that unless they had seen it with their own eyes? And why have thousands of others over the centuries done the same thing? And then on top of that, I believe that God in his love really did send his son in the world because I have had experiences with the risen Savior, as I know that so many of you have as well. You know that he's alive. The creator did send his son into the world to die for sinners, not to die for good people, not for cleaned up people. Look again at verse six, for the helpless, for the ungodly. God has proven his gracious love for sinners in sending his own son, Jesus Christ. And that is why it is by faith in Christ alone that we're justified. Because God did send his own son and we must receive him. To reject the gift of Christ is to reject God himself. 
Another reason in this chapter that it is only in Christ that we're justified is there in verse 9, which you already read. Verse 9 tells us that we're justified by Christ's blood. We are justified by Christ's blood. The book of Hebrews goes into depth on this, but to sum it up briefly, because God is holy, sin must be atoned for, or otherwise we can't come close to God. In the Old Testament, animals were sacrificed, their blood was shed in order to atone for the sins of the people, but the problem was it didn't really work, or otherwise they wouldn't have had to keep sacrificing animals. This is in the book of Hebrews. But Jesus Christ is the perfect spotless lamb who takes away the sins of the world. He is the full and final sacrifice. He is the one whose blood atones for the sin of all who will believe in him. So we can be justified only in Christ because it is only Christ who has shed his blood for us. The law of God, as good as it is, never died for us. Those things that we make into idols to try to to find a form of salvation, things like comfort or the absence of conflict or sex or money or power or career or education or all the rest, none of those things ever died for us to atone for our sins. All of those things say, do better, try harder, one day you'll be at peace, one day you'll get there, and they never deliver. But Christ says, I've done it all. It's finished. My blood has been shed. You are cleansed. You're declared not guilty. So come, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Christ has died for us in our place. He has been the perfect human that we could never be and died the death that we deserved. It is only by his blood that we're pronounced not guilty. And so it's only by faith in him that we're saved. And then a third reason that it's only by faith in Christ that we're saved is in verses 12 through 21. And these verses tell us that Christ is the new humanity. He's the new humanity, and through him comes life. Let me just read five of these verses so you hear what God is saying through Paul. Verse 12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. So we, we have this problem. We all have this problem, and that's that we die. Like everybody's getting older and eventually will die. And this is because Adam sinned. It's because we sinned. Then skipping over a lot of beautiful verses, join me in verse 18. So then, as through one trespass, that's Adam's sin, there's condemnation for everyone. So also through one righteous act, that's Christ's cross, there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The law came along to multiply the trespasses, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, friends and brothers and sisters, listen. The cure... For the, the, the deepest problem in your heart is Jesus Christ. You, you don't just need a change of circumstances. You don't just need a new house. You don't need a new spouse. I know some of you may be wrestling with that. You don't need a new husband, a new wife. That's not the problem. You don't need a new family. You might need a new job, but, but that's not going to solve the ultimate problem within your heart. The problem you're facing, that problem of discontent, 
and fear and that death that is coming, that problem ultimately isn't out there somewhere else in the world. The problem is ultimately in here, in your own heart. We keep on sinning. We're ungrateful. We're bitter. We're callous. We take things for granted. We fail to love God and we fail to love people. And on top of all that, no matter what we achieve, whatever, whatever good behavior we might achieve in this life, we're going to die. So we have a serious problem. We need more than a Band-Aid. We need to be made new people. And that's what Jesus has done. He is the new Adam. He's the beginning of a new humanity. He's everything a human should be. And he's God. And he's died and he's risen and he's coming again. And if we're united to him by faith, then we'll be raised to never to die again. 1 Corinthians 15 There Paul says it this way, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this imperishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So you see, it's only in Christ whom God sent by his love. It is only in Christ who is the new humanity and it's only in Christ who has shed his blood to justify us, that we can be saved. Who can receive God's grace? Anybody, whatever your background, whatever your record, by faith in Christ. And isn't that why we love to see that, sing that song in Christ alone? In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, the gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God that we, that we deserve was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid, here in the death of Christ I live. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his, and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. (laughs) Justification. That pronouncement, not guilty, is for anyone by faith in Christ. Now the second question, what if we receive God's grace by faith in Christ? What then? Well, it changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. If we live by grace, we live under grace, it changes everything. But we don't have time to talk about everything this morning. So you might, might feel like we've been talking about everything. It is four chapters. You're being very patient. Let's talk about two things that are in verses, uh, chapters 6 and 7. Two things that changes if we live under the grace of God. First, grace changes our relationship to suffering. Changes our relationship to suffering. Back in chapter 5, verse 2, Paul talks about boasting in the hope of the glory of God. Then in verse 3, he says this. And I loved hearing Heather read this earlier. And not only that, But we boast also in our afflictions because we know that that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So because justification is by grace through faith in Christ, we can have confidence that we are Christ's. He is with us, and we will be with him. There's no sort of, am I being good enough? Am I good enough, God? 
Will you bless me if I behave well enough? There's none of that because justification is by faith in Christ. In 1775, John Newton, who was, uh, of course, a minister, the writer of Amazing Grace, and was a slave trader turned abolitionist, he wrote a letter to a widow, and she was a friend of his, and he wrote to comfort her about the loss of her husband. Here's some of what he wrote. He says, The gospel reveals one thing needful, the pearl of great price, and supposes that they who possess this are provided for against all events, and have ground of unshaken hope and a source of never-failing consolation under every change they can meet with during their pilgrimage state. And what is that consolation? He says, if I am redeemed from misery by the blood of Jesus, and if he is now preparing me a mansion near himself, that I may drink of the rivers of pleasure at his right hand forevermore, the question is not, at least should not be, how may I pass through life with the least inconvenience? That's not the question. But how may my little span of life be made most subservient to the praise and glory of him who loved me and gave himself for me? He ends the letter like this, tenderly. He says, go on, my dear madam, yet a little while and Jesus will wipe away all tears from your eyes. You will see your beloved again, and he and you will rejoice forever together. Now, I know that you have suffered. I know that we have all suffered this last year. Suffering of isolation, of up and down, of not knowing what the rules of social engagement are going to be in a pandemic, not knowing what the health outcomes are going to be. We have all suffered, and I know that you suffered in different ways in your own life, the assurance that God's grace brings, it changes our relationship to suffering in this world. We no longer live with comfort as our highest goal. Instead, we now live for the glory of God, knowing that God is with us in our suffering and will bring us all the way home. The Holy Spirit has convinced us of God's love for us in Christ, so we endure in this life. We hang on. We keep going. Grace makes tender Christians and suffering people as brave as lions in the face of suffering. It has even enabled Christians to face down death in the face of literal lions. Grace redeems suffering. Christ will make everything right. And in the meantime, Christ is molding you into the likeness of himself. And so God's grace changes suffering from an occasion for despair into an occasion for hope. And then second, God's grace changes our relationship to God's law. God's grace changes our relationship to God's law. This is basically all of chapters 6 and 7. I'm going to barely touch on them. Josh will have occasion to talk about them a little bit more. But the bottom line is this. Under the grace of God, we have greater motivation and power to obey God's law than we ever had outside of Christ. Therefore, chapter 6, verses 12 through 14 say, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires, and do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. We don't turn away from sin in order to get God's grace, but God has 
shed forth his love in our hearts. He has given us his grace, and that makes us want to flee sin. Paul says in chapter 6, verse 1, How can we who have died to sin still live in us? Grace produces repentance in the heart, and we change. We don't obey God to get what we want. We don't obey God because we're worried that he is a, a conditionally loving father. We obey God because God has done what we could never do in sending his own son. He has shed his love on us, and so we obey him because we love him. While we were running off with the candlesticks, nailing Christ to the cross, God, in that moment, was giving his son for us. And his son was praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That knowledge of God's grace in our deepest darkness changes us, and we can never be the same again. Now we read God's commands, and we love them. We begin to delight in God's law. And what's more than that, we are enabled to turn away from sin. By faith, we can please God. By faith, we can obey. By faith in Christ, we are made into what we were always meant to be, righteous and at peace with the Creator. So here's the biggest takeaway of all. When we say, hear this if you, don't, if you hadn't heard anything else. When we say that God's grace is available to anyone by faith in Christ, what we're saying, what God is saying, is that God himself is available to anyone by faith in Christ. Grace isn't this separate thing that's available It's not a concept we're talking about today. It's a person, the divine trinity. It's not a theory or a religious system or a theology. It is God himself who is on offer today. And he offers himself to you and to me in his son who died where we should have died and who lives. So receive him by faith. Become a child of the king. Become ennobled. Receive dignity and forgiveness and an inheritance and be changed. Will you live by grace? Will you live by faith? Will you trust in the goodness of God? And will you go on preaching the same gospel to yourself every day? See, if we've been justified by God's grace through faith in Christ, then let's no longer give ourselves over to sin. And let's no longer be graceless toward others. May we, as Christ's church, trust in God to such an extent that the feel of grace infuses everything we say, do, or think and frees us from those sins that so easily entangle us. May we live by grace. Let's pray. Father, we are so prone to wander into believing that you're waiting for us to get ourselves together and then you'll bless us. And we are running after things, Lord, besides you, because we we don't believe that we could not be more secure than we are. We, We do not believe, Lord, that we are united to your Son, and that when you look on us, you see him, if we believe. So I just pray for faith. For those who are not in Christ this morning, I pray that they would believe. For those of us who are are in Christ, would you help us cling to grace? Even as we take the bread and the cup in a few moments, help us to remember that these things were given, the body and blood of your Son, 
were given because you loved us while we were unlovely. Your love isn't like our love. You don't love us because we're lovely. But your love makes us lovely. So thank you for loving us in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.